Good morning, everyone, and good morning online. Glad that you're with us. Um, this weekend, we celebrate um, Veterans Day, and we want to give honor where honor is due. So those of you that served, we are deeply grateful. I want to pray a prayer of blessing for you and your families. And I also uh, want to uh, remind us that um, the things that we enjoy sometimes come at a cost. We, we understand that in our culture. That's why we celebrate a day like Veterans Day. Uh, every time we gather in the church to worship Jesus, there's a cost that we remember his cost on the cross for us, which is the ultimate sacrifice, of course. And uh, this morning, our message also focuses on our uh, involvement, our engagement, our commitment to one another, and there's a cost to that. And so I think uh, as, we, as we pray, um, we'll, just, we'll just meditate on those things as we pray. Would you join me? Father, um, it's true, there's a cost to thriving in this world, and we sometimes have to pay. And uh, we want to start by saying thank you for those who have sacrificed and served us, and I pray your special blessing on those who have uh, in, in whatever way they've done it, served us to allow us to thrive and be free. Most of all, we thank you for sending your son who died in our place and has made everything new and everything possible, the ultimate sacrifice. We're so grateful for that. And for ourselves, Lord, as we look at being part of your family and the cost that that sometimes will have for us, may we understand that it is a worthy cost and that you will bless and you will strengthen and that you will empower us. May we be responsive to you in your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a uh, little language lesson here, and I want you to, this is a speak back to me moment. So I'd like you to repeat a phrase, and I'll make sure you got it right, and then I'll change the phrase, and I'll make sure you got that right, because it's the difference of the two phrases that we're going to talk about this morning. So the first phrase is all alone. Can you say that with me? All alone. All alone. Does anyone not understand what that means? We probably understand what that means. Okay, second phrase, totally different phrase. Okay, are you ready? All alone. Why are you looking at me funny? Some of you are like, okay, it's a totally different phrase. Listen carefully. The first phrase, all alone. Got that? Okay, the second phrase, all alone. Did you catch it that time? All alone? All alone. What difference does that make? Everything. The difference between those two words and how we approach life as the church of Jesus Christ is, is, is defining. Because we tend to approach it one way, and if we approach it that way, um, that's why so many of us have experiences in hapless churches that are unhealthy and that have not been of much benefit to us, at least at some point in our lives. On the other hand, the other phrase, that's the church Jesus died for. And when I learn that phrase, not, not how I pronounce it, but how I practice it, that's where the church Jesus died for can really um, have its impact, and that what, that's what brings help for my life and hope for the world, which is what Jesus intends. So we'll come back to those two words, or two phrases in a minute, but first I want to start by telling you a little story. In September of 2004, uh, let me get his name right here, Frank, yeah, that's a tough, tough name to remember, Frank, Frank Watts, 
Okay, so I, and I'm not real sharp this morning, but Frank Watts got up in his house in South Africa and was going about his business like he normally does. He is a safari guide. So he got up, went down to the office, got the truck ready, waited for the tourists to come, and there were a number of tourists who were joining him that day, including David Budzinski and Jason's, Jason Schlosh. His name's a little harder. Jason. Jason. So David and Jason joined Frank, and we'll keep it simple because that's apparently all I can handle this morning, and other people to go out on this safari, this game drive in the Kruger National Park of South Africa. And they went to this well-known watering hole where the animals were known to congregate, and they were on opposite side from where the animals usually approached. And um, the two guys, Jason and... Um, Boy, I can't even remember names this morning. This is going to be a tough sermon. And David, uh, it would be better if I took more notes, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, anyway, David and, and uh, Jason were filming as this was all unfolding. And you can actually hear it. I've, I've seen the video on YouTube. You can actually hear the responses of the other people in the truck as, as the animal are approaching. And uh, as, they're, as they're sitting there watching the watering hole, this massive herd of Cape buffalo, several hundred head, comes just striding up towards the waterhole, this huge just collection of beasts. It's, it's awesome to see. But what the huge collection of beasts don't see that the people on the safari trip do see is there's also a pride of lions crouching in the long grass between the buffalo and the water. And as the buffalo approach, it's unclear whether the, the, uh, the lead buffalo gets spooked or where the lions just attack, but suddenly pandemonium breaks out and they all start scattering and the buffalo run every direction and the lions are chasing them. And one lioness manages to take down an adolescent Cape buffalo. And as she does so, they're on an embankment and they both fall four or five feet to the watering hole itself. And as soon as they fall down there, two enormous crocodiles that have been watching this from the water lunge forward and they think, what a, what a delightful young lioness, she's brought us lunch. And so they grab hold of this poor water buffalo and they start pulling. Meanwhile, the lioness is not willing to give up her lunch and her friends join her. So there's a pride of lions on one end of this water buffalo and two crocodiles on the other end of this water buffalo playing tug of war and the lions win. The crocodiles go back to whatever they're gonna do and the uh, lions manage to get the, the water buffalo back up on the upper level of the embankment and just then as you're listening to this whole thing, as you're watching, you hear a gasp and someone says, oh, they're coming back. And it's the, most, it's the most amazing moment because the one that's running the, the video camera pans back and you see the, this, there's like eight lionesses, six or eight of them on this uh, water buffalo. And you pan back and you see a wall of water buffalo, hundreds of heads, shoulder to shoulder, striding up straight towards those lions with the look of intent in their eyes. They will not let these lions have one of their own. It's not a random collection of people in the herd. It's a family. And this is our family, and you don't eat our family. And so sure enough, the buffalo come, come forward, and the first one chases off one of the lionesses. The second one manages to get his rack under one of the lions and flings him end over end. And the other six lions just go, ping, and take off. And this majestic herd turns and starts to go back and amazingly, 
the adolescent water buffalo that was laying there pops up and runs away in the middle of the herd to fight another day, I guess. And what we have in that story, it, that's an amazing video. I'm sure a lot of people are going to watch it today. Uh, there were 91 million views as of yesterday. There'll be 91 million and whatever as of the end of today, I'm sure. Um, what we have in there is a perfect illustration of the difference between all alone and all alone. All alone, A-L-L, new word, A-L-O-N-E, English, meaning by myself, without anyone around. When that water buffalo was in that state, he had no hope. He was going to be devoured. All alone, alpha, lambda, lambda, eta, lambda, omega, nu, one word, Greek, one another, being together, when the herd came back, the lions were in trouble. And the, the calf survived. Right, there's a great picture of what goes on in the church of Jesus Christ and how we think about the church. You know, we're in this series, The Church Jesus Died For, and at the beginning and actually several points along the way, I've tried to remind us we're probably not going to break any brand new ground here. These aren't new insights that we're going to have. This is revisiting things that we're all supposed to know that are supposed to be foundational, and it's asking us, are our foundation stones in place? And so it's stuff we've talked about. In fact, the themes even of the sermons intertwine because there's so much... Um, multi-layeredness to the truth, that they all kind of come back to some of the same things. And I realize there's a certain irony, at least in, in to those of you that are in the room, preaching about let's all be together to the people who are regularly together. Thank you for being here. For those of you that are online, you are always welcome. Thank you. But if, uh, if you are able, we would always invite you down here because there's things about the church of Jesus Christ that can't happen through a screen. And if that's the only option you have, then praise God that option's available, but it's about us being together. And the difference between doing life all alone and doing life all alone is huge. And the idea of one another, the all alone aspect of the church, is a huge dimension of what Jesus died for. So if you want to take your Bible, would you open to John chapter 13? John chapter 13. And as, as you're turning there, I would like to ask you to think about your heart and mind towards the church. When I use the church, remember, there is the uh, universal church that Jesus has called together people from everywhere, but almost always in the New Testament, when it's talking about the church, it's talking about the church with a zip code, right? A local gathering of people, and that's what I, we're talking about this morning, particularly this gathering. When you think about us, what do you think about? What is your attitude? What is your approach? Are you one who tries to do church all alone, where it really revolves around where you are in that particular moment? Or are you one who's trying to do church all alone, where it's a one another reality that you're pursuing and we're doing this together? Or um, if I could have some help, Maddie, would you be kind enough to come up here, put you on the spot? Maddie's going to demonstrate for us uh, how... One approach, one approach to church. Um, I have here a vat of, I can't remember, it's either sulfuric acid or water. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's water. Would you, would you stick your hand in that? Ah, yes. Okay, go ahead, all the way down if you wouldn't mind. 
Okay, can you all see her hand? Can you see the water? Is, 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 has much happened to the water? The level's gone up a little bit. It's kind of wiggling around because she's moving. Now, would you pull your hand out? And look at the water. Just a little bit of movement, right? So what happened is Maddie took up some space, and then she left, and nothing much happened. Okay, now, would you step over here? And let's randomly pick, oh, let's say this young man here, Diego. <laughs> would you come up and join us on stage? That'd be great. And uh, Gary, would you mind coming over here too? All right. Now, let's all just hold hands. Your hand's wet. You know what? When you're all done, I bet you could wipe your hands on his shirt. He wouldn't mind. Okay. Now, here's a question. When we approach church, do we think of it in terms of hand in water, come and go, take up a little space, maybe a little something happens, but at the end of the day, nothing much is different. My hand might be a little wet and the water might be moving, but nothing big changed. Is that what church is? Or church is, is church about hand in hand? Or we do it together? Or this is about us doing life together, supporting one another, encouraging one another, being there for one another. Thank you. You can go back and... <laughs> yeah, thank you, Gary. <laughs> you guys are great. Um, so which, which approach to church is uh, the one that you default to? Hand in water or hand in hand? Is it all alone, two words, or it centers on what am I feeling, what am I thinking, how am I responding to things, what do I want in the moment? Or all alone, one Greek word, where it's all about one another, being together and doing this together. Because if it's, if it's hand in water kind of approach, I'm doing it all alone and nobody wants to do that when we really think about it, right? There's a difference in what drives me. If, if it's hand in water, then I'm probably being driven by what's convenient. But if it's hand in hand, I'm, I'm being driven more by a commitment. So am I driven by convenience or commitment? Am I doing this all alone or all alone? Am I, am I the hand in the water, takes up a little space, disappears, things go back to normal? Or is it hand in hand when we're doing this together? What Jesus died to create and what he calls on us to be and what he will empower us to be is a community, an all alone community, a gathering, a one another kind of community. And in John 13, he gives us one of his great passages on that. And if you want to, you, you probably could quote it. This is the evening before he's crucified. He's just washed the disciples' feet. And then he takes that physical act and makes a metaphorical statement about it. And he says, you know, you saw me. And it, it starts by saying he loved them to the end. Then he washes their feet. And he says, you've seen what I've done now. You washed one another's feet, taking that physical act and turning it into something more metaphorical and saying, serve one another. And then he says some more things. And then near the end of, of the passage that we're looking at, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love all alone, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love all alone. You are to love one another. Don't do this all alone. Do this all alone. Love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
right? It's, it's, this, um, it's this command that says, what I want you to do is I want you to do this hand in hand. I want you to be committed to each other. I want you to be attentive to each other. And I want that to be driven by love. And as you live in a covenantal community of love. That's really what a church is. It's a covenantal community of love. As you live in this covenantal community of love, you will commit to serve each other and ultimately that will shake the world. Right? You do these things, people will see you and they will take note and they will say, wow, something's going on here. Those people look like Jesus. They act like Jesus. Let's take a look. Right? That's what Jesus is getting across. And one of the things that was kind of the genesis for this series, in my heart at least, that, you know, when we have a preaching series, it usually starts, often it'll start with me, because I'm the primary one responsible, but it'll, it'll get interacted with and prayed about, and the elders will talk about it and so on. But the initial genesis for this series, one of the factors was that we tend to do church all alone, not all alone. And it's a real heartache, right? It seems that increasingly people view church as optional. And it's at the very heart of what Jesus intends. It's actually not optional. Or a little more subtly but has a similar kind of effect in my commitment to any particular community, they view the church through the lens of options like a menu. Right, what are the options that are here for me? Once upon a time, those tended to be all the different ministries. You have this kid's ministry and that adult ministry. And, and that's not bad per se, right? There's, there's reasons for me to look at those things. But we have become increasingly and too much, I suspect, driven by those things. And we've added to that even some theological things that are secondary. They may be important. In fact, many of them are important. But we, we kind of look at them through a lens that's probably disproportionately significant. Like, is this verse, is this, is this church reformed in the way that I particularly want it to be? Is this church look at end times as a major focus, and is that, uh, is that the way that I want to look at it? We, we tend to pick our hobby horse things, and we, we, we look at the church through the, like a, like a menu card. Check, check, check. No, I don't want that. Here's what I want. Right, either way, either way, something's going on in our hearts, I think, at large, I think I see this. Obviously, you're here, so thank you, <laughs> thank you. But every church has its moments, every church has its weaknesses, every church has its strengths, and all of us need to be reminded. And all of us need to be encouraged and strengthened in things that we're doing well in, and we need to be shored up in things that we're not doing so well in, and we need to be equipped in helping other people. So as we look at this, that's really what we want to look at. Jesus says, I want you to do life all alone. I want you to do this with a one another mindset. I want you to be hand in hand, not hand in water. It's a family. It's a family. Now, I know some of our families have been really, really bad examples. And my prayer is that God would be able to redeem that picture for you. But I think most of us can at least conceive of what the family's supposed to be. And the, and the church of Jesus Christ, and this one in particular, is far from perfect. Uh, if it were, I wouldn't be the pastor, right? You would have somebody that's perfect, and that's not me. 
but then you wouldn't be here anyway because you're not perfect either. So, I mean, that's the way it is with the church, right? We're, we're flawed and we struggle, but there are these glorious moments, these glorious things that happen because the Holy Spirit works among us, and that's what Jesus is calling forth. He's saying, I want my family in this world to be committed to one another in love. And I want that to be defining so when people see you, they see that and they see me. So we are a covenantal community of love. But that's become optional in some ways for some of us, I think. And there's hurdles that we have to overcome, so let's just talk about those for a minute because at its heart, we wanna come back to the fundamental that Jesus died to create this kind of church. One of the hurdles, I think, is um, FOMO. Some of us have a real bad case of FOMO when we have a hard time making any decision and sticking with anything because we're afraid of missing out. If I commit to this, well, then I won't be able to do this. But if I commit to this, then I won't be able to do this. So I'll try to, try to bounce around between them. And in the process, what we, realize, what we may fail to realize is we're actually missing out on a lot more than we're getting. Because we, we may move from the most amazing experience to the most amazing experience, but the most transformative experiences aren't necessarily amazing, but they are consistent. And they take place over time. And bouncing around is a terrible idea. We need to find a place that's not perfect, but we need to find a family and we need to plug in. We need to be part of that. And I think some of us have to get over the FOMO idea and just say, this is, this is what God has for me, I'm, I'm in, right? Another hurdle that we have to overcome, for some of us anyway, is death by clutter. Have you ever noticed how life just gets more and more full? It's crazy, especially those of you that are in the active parenting phase. Like, doesn't, the, the new opportunities and obligations do not seem to end, do they? Well, there's this sports thing, and there's this school thing, and it's like it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And then on top of that, we got this team on the weekend, and we got this um, overnight trip, and then, well, if we're ever going to have time as a family, we need to do this camping thing. And, and one thing adds to another, adds to another. I got this business trip, and then by, the next, by, the, by the time you know it, there's no space for the family of God. That's a poor trait. That's a poor trait. It is very important that I would pour into my family. And it's okay, it's good, it's right, it's necessary for me to get away, for us to do things, for us to kind of huddle up and just be us. But if that pulls me completely out of being involved with God's family, it's a very poor trait. Because what I'm passing on to my family is gonna be ultimately bankrupt. So that's something we have to deal with. And it's not just those in the active family phase, it can be those in the um, single phase, because there's always one more opportunity. You can be the grandparenting phase. We've got to go take care of the grandkids this weekend. You can be elderly, right? And you, I, I've had 28 meetings this week, every one of them with somebody who had the initials MD after his name, and I'm shot. I don't have anything more to give. I'm done, right? There's all kinds of things that get busy in life and that clutter things up. And some of those things are necessary. If, if, I'm, if I'm 85 and fighting cancer, I may be shy. I may not be able to actually get up and do that today. And that's okay. It, it may be that our family actually does, I mean, this is a holiday weekend, right? You look around and go, well, there's a lot of people going here. That's fine. There's, there's no, no harm, no foul, right? There's times and places to do that. 
But what Jesus is calling us to is to be this all alone community, this one anothering community that is defined by love that says, wow, we are in this with each other. We're doing it not hand in water, but hand in hand. And I can't let clutter fill up my life and drive out the church of Jesus Christ. Somehow these things have to fit together. Somehow I have to redistribute them, right? Another thing I think is a hurdle that we have to deal with is the cult of self. This is huge. We live in a day and age where it is actually presented not just as reasonable, but actually the right thing to do for everyone to act like a three-year-old. I'm not exaggerating. A three-year-old assumes the world revolves around them and will do everything they can to reshape the entire world around them. And in our culture, that's how we define success, how we define vibrancy, how we define meaningful life is it's what fits me. And the irony is when I'm driven by the things that, you know, it, this is what feels right for me in this moment, like, that's like the dumbest idea ever, isn't it? I mean, stop and think about it. When, you're, when you have your wits about you, do you really trust your judgment all the time, especially in an intense circumstance? It's like, oh, I'm always gonna live by what makes the most sense to me in this moment. Well, that's a really bad idea. And yet we, we continue to elevate that and say that's the only way to live. And then we have to deal with that. It's like, no, Jesus is calling us to be a whole different kind of family. There's these hurdles we have to get over, the hurdle of the cult of self, the hurdle of just the clutter of life, the hurdle of all these kinds of things that can get in the way because he's calling me not to live the hand in water, but to live the hand in hand, love you and be loved by you. Not to be driven by convenience, but to be faithful to a commitment. Another thing that I think can affect us, an important hurdle that I hope to help us get over this morning, is that we may just not realize just how central this is to what God has. And so I wanna read you some verses. And I want you to just listen to these verses, listen for the word one another, and listen to the kinds of things it's talking about. This is not every verse in the New Testament, but it's a good sampling. Starting with our passage in John, a new commandment I give you to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Later on in John, these things I command you so that you will love one another. In Romans, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Later on in Romans, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Galatians, bear one another's burdens. Please note, it doesn't say be one another's burdens. It, it's, it's got this idea not of, hey, here I am, everyone take care of me. It's like, hey, here I am, I'm here to help take care of you. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. A little later in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. First Thessalonians. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Later on, therefore encourage one another with these words. Later on, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you're doing. Book of Hebrews, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. First Peter, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Later in First Peter, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. First John, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Later on in First John, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Second John, now I ask, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. Just a sample. It's a good, broad sample, but there's more there. It is easy, perhaps, to lose sight of the fact that Jesus died to create a church where we are doing this hand in hand, and on the very top of our to-do list, on the very front of our minds, is this idea of we do this all alone. We do this with one another. We don't do this all alone. We don't do this by ourselves. And the driving ultimate reality, the one that showed up most, and the one that I think is the controlling idea for all of them, is the idea of love. We love one another. And these other, these other ideas are practical expressions of that. So I come back to the question, very practical question for me and for you. Kind of check in. How am I doing, Lord, in my family? 
am I doing this all alone at this moment, or am I doing this all alone? Is this about me, or am I doing this hand in hand? And I'm attentive and prayerful and concerned and engaged with the needs of my brothers and sisters, because that's what he's called us to. And because it's a command, this is the new commandment I give you. It's something we, we opt into. Right? He's telling us, here's what you do, but there's a response. So the question is, am I opted in, and am I continually opting in? I want to take a couple of minutes and dive in just a little more deeply into one passage, because it'll help to flesh out a few more details. And I also think it, it meets a particular need that I see anyway. Because I think one of the temptations that I have, I think, observed, I, I want to say this all very carefully, because I'm just one, one, one vantage point. I, I see things through a lens, through my perspective. I try to be prayerful. I try to be thoughtful. But I'm human, and I can be skewed, right? But as I look around, I do see what I think is a season of fear and panic, and that way that we, we respond actually shuts down, and sometimes even strong arms the idea of one another. It's like, well, this is a, this is a, this is a very distinctive season. This is, a, this is a crisis season. We don't have time for that. Now, we don't say it that way, but I think people sometimes act that way. And so I, I wondered, what does the Bible say? What does God say about in the crisis season, like when the world is coming to an end? Right? The world is coming to an end. This is falling apart. This isn't working. And so the Bible actually talks about when the world is literally coming to an end, and amazingly enough, one another show up in that section. So if you want to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to just flesh out a couple of things from this passage that might be encouraging and or challenging. First Peter chapter 4. Just to set the context... Verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. He's literally saying, the world is coming to an end. Right? This is the crisis moment. Now, it's a long moment. It's, it's, a, it's a prophetic season. Jesus will return. He hasn't returned yet, but he will hopefully soon. That'll fix everything. But in the meantime, how do we live? The world is coming to an end. Things are falling apart. What do I do then? That's what he's talking about. And the first thing he says is don't freak out. Don't freak out. Now, here's how you say that in Bible language. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Right? Don't, don't get all panicky and freaked out. Um, keep your wits about you so that you can pray. Um, just as a quick little aside on this dynamic, I think it's important for me to come to grips with the fact that it is impossible for me to simultaneously think that the world is hanging by a thread and it desperately needs me to do something or it's going to collapse and simultaneously to believe in God. It's just not possible, right? And they have the same potential that we do. So he says, look, in light of the end, 
Keep your wits about you and be prayerful. Double down on your love for one another. That's your first strategy. That's the first need. In this moment of crisis, that's the most important thing. Here's what he says, verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. So this this covenantal community of love that we're a part of, I'm supposed to be committed to that, and that commitment is a fierce commitment. It is a commitment that says, even if the world around me feels like it is falling apart, one thing that will not go, one thing that will not be compromised, is my love for my brothers and sisters. I am fiercely committed to that. Look at the language that he uses to elevate that, to, to intensify that. Above all, do this. Keep doing this. I know that it's hard. I know there's things that are threatening it. I know there's things that make it harder. Keep doing it and do it earnestly. This should be a a fierce commitment. And then he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love calls out a multitude of sins. Right? Doesn't say that. It says love covers over a multitude of sins. It, it, love's primary concern is not raising the alarm. There's a time to raise the alarm. Don't, don't miss that. There's a time to raise the alarm. But love is saying, I am first rooted in my relationship with you. We may have to wrestle. We may have to argue. You know, in families, you know, families drive each other nuts, right? Families also drive each other to LAX at 12 a.m. Right, there's a, there's a commitment. You know, we stand in line for the picture and we're all smiley and then somebody's messing up, you know, knock that off, right? That's the way it works in a family and then the next picture, maybe someone's smacking me in the back. It doesn't mean that everything's always just, hey, let's make nice and pretend everything, we're all on the same page. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means we all come from the same father. We all must guard our family and we all must do this together. And if we correct, if we stand, if we push, if we argue, we do that from a position of love. And so he says, above all, love, because love covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying my love will somehow atone for my sin. That would be heresy. What he is saying is my love for you will cover up your knuckleheadedness. And your love for me will cover up my knuckleheadedness. Right? Love covers a multitude of knuckleheads of whom I am foremost of all, if I can borrow Paul. That's what he's saying. Saying, so double down on the love. Commit to each other. Serve each other. Your connection to each other has to be protected. Here's a question that I think is worth sitting with for a moment. What is the greatest predictor Somebody from the outside looking at me, what would be the greatest predictor of my loyalty and affection and commitment to somebody? If they could see one thing and they say, I I can predict how they're going to respond to this person, what would it be? Is the greatest predictor this person is genuinely a brother or sister in Christ? Or is it their preferred news outlet? Is the greatest predictor this person's a genuine brother or sister in Christ? Or is it their political affiliation? Is the greatest predictor 
this person is genuinely a brother or sister of Christ or the color of their skin is the greatest predictor of my loyalty and affection to them that we're genuinely brothers and sisters in Christ or is it that they're worked up about the same social justice issue that I'm worked up about? There's all kinds of issues, and, and many of those issues are very important. Right? I am not minimizing those issues in saying they're not important. I'm trying to right-size them. Jesus says, I want you to be living together in love. You speak the truth, but you speak it in love. You correct and you stand firm, but you do so in love. The predictor of your loyalty and your affection and your commitment to each other has to be first and foremost. You are mine. You are part of the same family. If anything else rises to that position, something has gone terribly wrong. This is a group of people, and he's reminding them, yes, the world is coming to an end, so double down. It gets hard. Double down. Love one another. That'll cover over a multitude of sins. And then he, he doesn't just say there's a fierceness to this commitment. It's also practical. Right? There's a practical side to this commitment. Verse 9 and 10. Show hospitality to one another. Right? We looked at hospitality a couple of weeks ago and gave a rough definition of a welcoming, generous service for others. Right? Have this welcoming and generous heart for one another. And um, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Right? Well, I have a role in your life. You have a role in my life. I'm going to serve you. What, what we are called to be is, is not is not an affinity group. It's a family. Families are messed up. Families annoy each other. Families get it wrong so many times. But one thing a good family will get right is we are radically committed to each other and we're radically committed to doing this together. And somehow, by God's grace, we will help each other do it better. And you may drive me nuts or I may drive you nuts or whatever. But we're family. And I'm going to guard that. That's a fierce commitment of my heart. And there's a practical expression of that in how I serve you. That's the church Jesus died for. How many of us are still trying to do the hand in water thing? It's got to be hand in hand. I can't do this all alone. I have to do this all alone. So what might God want from me in response? Well, there's a number of things. First off, it's a relational connection. So let me start with saying sometimes families have rifts within them. I'm unaware of any particular rift. I'm not talking about anything particular right now, but I'm just talking about life in general. Rifts happen. That's not the problem. The problem is what comes next. So if there's a rift that you're involved in, and it's something that needs to be addressed, repent and restore. Because families have to work it out. At a more just engagement level, right, it's a covenant community. We have just today, it's no accident, we have our next steps class. That's for 
joining the church. If you are at an inflection point with Redemption Hill Church, it's like, I, you know, where am I with this church? This is the place for you. It doesn't take long. You can still, if you have lunch plans, you can still do those things. You can still go see the parent thing. Um, it's going to be half hour probably at the most because we just get right to the point. What is our covenant? What are we committed to with each other? And if you're, if you're thinking about being part of this family, that's what it's about. Go, go. it's uh, C200 next to the elevator upstairs right after the service. Go be a part of that. Take a few minutes, find out what it's about, and, and then pray. Is this what you want from me, God, or not? Because I, I want to I wanna really, I want to want another this thing. I want to do the all alone, not the all alone thing. Um, then it's up to you whether, whether it's time or not for you to do that. But I would just encourage you, there's a good place to plug in. Maybe you're not plugged into a life group. Let us know. Or ministry, let us know. There's a, there's a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's just being prayerful and generous. That's a great place to start. How am I one anothering this family? Because if this is the family God has me in, that's what I'm supposed to do. And if I can't do that, as much as we'd like you to stick around, I actually would encourage you don't. You need to find a family where you can actually do family stuff because that's the way Jesus designed it. All alone, not a good thing. Two words, English, isolating. All alone, one word, Greek, brings us together over and over again. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do for, be, by, with one another, one another. Let me pray for us. Ask the ushers to come, we'll take our offering. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we are a family. We are certainly not a perfect family. I know I'm not. And I appreciate your grace and your forgiveness. And I appreciate the grace and forgiveness of my brothers and sisters here, that their love for me can cover a multitude of my sins. I appreciate, Lord, that it doesn't stop there, that people will correct and encourage and challenge each other. I know that's part of it too but I thank you that we can do that in love. I pray that that would grow more and more, that our love for each other would be defining. That would be the number one predictor, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that everything else would flow from that. Things are hard, Lord, and we struggle. Would you increase our love for each other and our ability to serve and care for one another? Would you allow this church family to be just a little bit more like your ideal? May we be just a little bit more, by the power of your spirit, just a little bit more the church that you died for. And may that transform us and may that cause the world around us to take notice and not notice us as much as they notice you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.